0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Diving right in, I'm pleased to share that today's presentation has been awarded credit for physicians, nurses, and radiologic technicians. This program is brought to you by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants from our industry partners. The planners and speakers have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. To claim credit today, please take our online survey. The link to the survey will be shared at the end of the program and in the Zoom chat. If you have a question for the presenters, please hold until the Q&A segment. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Sanjay Lal and Dr. Glenn Henry. Dr. Sanjay Lal is a cardiologist with Georgia Heart Institute. He received his medical degree from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He then went on to complete a residency at University Hospitals of Cleveland International Medicine, followed by a fellowship in cardiovascular disease at UPMC. Dr. Lal is a board certified in, is board certified in cardiovascular disease and internal medicine. Dr. Glenn Henry is an interventional interventional cardiologist and is the medical director of the interventional cardiology and the cardiac cath labs at Georgia Heart Institute. Before relocating to Gainesville, Dr. Henry practiced at Yale Medicine for nearly 30 years, where he also completed his residency and fellowships in cardiology and echocardiography. He's been doing procedures in the cath lab for over 25 years and has a special interest in complex coronary revascularization. His goal as a physician is to help patients feel better and live longer, and he does that by providing compassionate care and working with his patients to educate them on their health. Now, please join me in welcoming to the stage, Dr. Law.
1: Thank you, uh, good morning, and thank you for being here this early in the morning. Um, It's a pleasure to speak to you about hypertension today. Um, And although our focus will be discussing resistant hypertension, some of the newer technologies and treatments available, uh, no talk about hypertension would really be complete without talking about the basics of hypertension. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I have no disclosures and no conflicts of interest. So our, our objective today is to really discuss the burden and impact of hypertension, uh, look at the definition, the diagnostic evaluation, and talk about the various treatments, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological therapies for hypertension. So if we think about hypertension as a disease process, it is a major cardiovascular risk, uh, contributes to stroke, myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, renal failure, and blindness. And in 2015, 22% of the world's population had hypertension. And this resulted in 9.4 million deaths. So think about that for a moment. One in five people in the entire world had hypertension in 2015. In 1980, there were 600 million people with hypertension. In 2015, there were 1.3 billion people with hypertension. And if you can see the trajectory, you can see where we are on the growth process for this disease process. And you can understand the impact that any treatment will have on patients with hypertension. So let's look more locally. Uh, In the United States, uh, the prevalence of hypertension is roughly 46%. So if you look around the room, uh, roughly half of you have hypertension. Um, and so it's, it's a large subset of population. And unfortunately, even among the 46% of patients who do have hypertension, only roughly 47% of patients are at goal. So roughly half of patients with hypertension are not at goal. And this is really important because the risk of dying from ischemic heart disease and stroke doubles for every increment of blood pressure, 20 millimeters systolic and 10 millimeters diastolic. So if you think about that for a moment, that's the difference between 130 over 80 and 150 over 90. And how often do you see a blood pressure 150 over 90? And realistically, we're talking about this in the ambulatory setting, and therefore our focus of this talk will really be about the ambulatory setting and not really the inpatient setting. And therefore, if you really think about it, lowering blood pressure has a huge impact on cardiovascular outcomes. So this is a uh, uh, a nice study done back in 2001 by Vassan and colleagues. Uh, It was part of the Framingham Heart Study. And what it really looked at was the difference in cardiovascular events And they followed people who were normotensive for a period of roughly 12 years. And they looked at the various strata of blood pressure to see what is the impact on cardiovascular risk. So if you think about it, the patients here uh, that were considered to have optimal blood pressure were patients who had a blood pressure 120 over 80. Uh, Normal blood pressure was considered a blood pressure between 120 and 129 systolic and diastolic blood pressure of 80 to 84. And high normal blood pressure was between 130 and 139 and a diastolic blood pressure of 85 to 89. And what they found is even in this cohort of what we would not consider it as high-risk individuals, the adjusted hazard ratio for cardiovascular risk is really 2.5 between the lowest optimal treated, uh, optimal goal, uh, optimal group versus the folks in the high normal group. And think about that about the next female patient you see in the office. Their hazards ratio for any cardiovascular disease with just a small increase in blood pressure is 2.5. And in men, that number is closer to 1.6. So in Every female patient that you make a small difference in blood pressure, you make a huge impact on their cardiovascular risk.
2: So really, it's
1: time to talk about the definition of hypertension. And what we consider to be hypertension is a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 130, diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 80 in patients who are not on any antihypertensive therapy. Again, based on what we've learned so far, our normal blood pressure should be really below 120 over 80. Elevated blood pressure is the the group between 120 to 129 over 80. And stage one hypertension uh, is a systolic blood pressure between 130 and 139, and a diastolic blood pressure between 80 and 89. We consider stage two hypertension, uh, any blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 over 90. So with with that in mind, let's talk about what resistant hypertension is. Uh, Resistant hypertension is a systolic blood pressure greater than 130 and a diastolic blood pressure greater than 80 on three medications at maximum doses for at least one month. And the usual therapy in these patients usually involves a diuretic, a calcium channel blocker, and an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. White coat hypertension, I think, is something that we all are familiar with as clinicians. And uh, it's the patient that shows up in the office that says, Doc, my blood pressure was great at home. I'm just a little nervous about being here. And so that is something we encounter all the time. You really look for an ambulatory blood pressure reading below 130 over 80 to really establish that there is white coat hypertension and the fact that in the clinic your blood pressure is elevated there's however an underappreciated entity called masked hypertension where the blood pressure in the clinic is normal or low uh, or borderline abnormal but the ambulatory blood pressure readings are elevated so these are the patients who go home and say doc my blood pressure at home is high and fortunately the prevalence of this disease process is low it it accounts for roughly about 6% of patients that you see in your clinic that have normal blood pressure readings. But if you look at the absolute number, it um, amounts to about 15 to 18 million patients. So that is still a large number, and these folks are at higher risk and really should be treated as folks in higher risk and should be treated for hypertension. So... It, it, How do we establish the diagnosis of hypertension? We really should be getting at least two separate readings performed at least one week apart with a mean blood pressure greater than or equal to 130 over 80. And there are certain caveats to this. Um, The patient must abstain from exercise, tobacco, and caffeine for at least 30 minutes. And so the guy that shows up to your office with his big jug of coffee in hand, getting his blood pressure checked, maybe we should try to check their blood pressures in an ambulatory setting as well. Um, They should sit quietly for greater than 10 minutes. Um, The arm should be exposed, free of constricted clothing. And we should really be using an appropriately sized cuff. Uh, And here's the harder part, uh, no talking. So the body has to be in sort of a resting state. So when we look at uh, patients with hypertension uh, and we're looking at potential explanations for hypertension, we really should look at clues that clue us in into other or secondary causes of hypertension. So patients who have resistant hypertension that are uncontrolled on three drugs um, somebody who, on screening laboratory data, has an elevated serum creatinine. You think about renal disease. Uh, the patient with hypokalemia, particularly if they're on an ACE on an ARB, you'd start thinking about primary aldosteronism. Uh, folks that have you know, uh, fatigue, early morning sleepiness, overweight, you think about sleep apnea. Uh, patients who have labile blood pressures, headaches, palpitations, sweating, you think about pheochromocytoma. And patients who have rapid weight gain, have proximal muscle weakness, striae, and characteristic facial uh, features, you think about Cushing's disease. Um, Thyroid disease can be picked up on routine laboratory data. In a young patient, uh, you think about coarctation of the aorta. And a, a rare entity where you see hypercalcemia can point to primary hyperparathyroidism. is it? So what are some of the things that we should consider when we do a diagnostic evaluation of a patient with hypertension? Um, so some basic labs, including a CBC, a CMP, TSH. And you really want to try and re- gear your secondary evaluation based on certain clues that you've picked up during your initial evaluation. So if you're concerned about primary aldosteronism based on the potassium values that you've picked up, you might want to consider doing a plasma renin activity and a plasma aldosterone concentration. And if that's positive, you might want to consider doing an adrenal CT. Uh, One underappreciated entity, sometimes in young women, is fibromuscular dysplasia. Uh, You can suspect that with an abdominal bruit. And workup can include renal duplex, an MRA, or a CTA of the renal artery. Um, In the patient who you suspect of having sleep apnea, a sleep study would be beneficial. And treatment of sleep apnea would be uh, entirely helpful towards the treatment of hypertension. Uh, And in patients with uh, a pheochromocytoma, uh, you want to think about a 24-hour urine for metanephrine, plasma metanephrines and a CT and MRA, depending on what the workup from a metabolic standpoint reveals. Uh, for patients that you suspect of having Cushing's, you might want to consider doing an overnight dexamethasone suppression test. When we look at the patient, we really should look at the entire patient, which means you have to look at their social history, their medications, and really think, if are there any extraneous factors that may be contributing to elevated blood pressures. And those things can include alcohol use, uh, amphetamines, excessive caffeine intake, uh, decongestants, herbal supplements, which seem to be a common thing that patients seem to be using these days, uh, or contraceptives, um, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories, recreational drugs, and systemic steroids. And oftentimes, you will find that patients get an injection in their joint and that blood pressure tends to be a little bit out of control. So that is not an uncommon finding either. So the treatment of hypertension really should be a multi-pronged approach. Uh, we should stop or minimize medications that lead to elevated blood pressures. It should involve diet and lifestyle counseling. And then medications as and when needed. Um, And when we talk about medications, there are primary medicines, and then there are secondary medicines. And the secondary medicines will really be dictated by the characteristics of the patients and their underlying diseases and illnesses. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about non-pharmacological interventions. Um, Weight loss. So a one millimeter blood pressure reduction for every kilogram reduction in body weight. So roughly 2.2 pounds. And the average impact is expected to be about 5 millimeters of mercury. And uh, one thing that I found very interesting and surprising is a DASH diet. Uh, You can have a pretty significant impact on blood pressure control with following a DASH diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and low-fat dairy products. Uh, Reduction in sodium certainly has a impact uh, up to about five millimeters of mercury, and physical activity up to 150 minutes per week can also add to an impact of about five millimeters of mercury. So with that, let's talk about what are some of the primary medications for the treatment of uh, hypertension. So we're all familiar with the typical thiazide or thiazide type diuretics, which include chlorthalidone and hydrochlorothiazide, um, and also endapamide and metolazone, which are used a little less often. Um, Chlorcalidone has the highest uh, half-life and is used, has the most robust data, but hydrochlorothiazide is also frequently used. Uh, The things that one needs to watch for are electrolyte abnormalities, such as hyponatremia, hypokalemia, uh, calcium levels. And you use it with a a bit of caution in somebody with gout, as it may exacerbate their gout. Another category that we as clinicians are very familiar with include ACE inhibitors. Um, And here are some representative, but not exhaustive, list of ACE inhibitors The key thing here is to not use them with an ARB or a direct renin inhibitor. Um, There is risk of hyperkalemia in patients with chronic kidney disease, on those with potassium sparing agents, or on those uh, and those patients with potassium supplements. Uh, And in the setting of bilateral renal artery stenosis, you can get acute kidney injury. You certainly want to avoid it in pregnancy due to its teratogenic effects. And don't use it in patients who have had angioedema to ACE inhibitors. Um, ARBs are sort of the corollary to ACE inhibitors. um, And here are another representative subset of medications that's not an exhaustive list. Uh, You don't want to use these in combination with ACE inhibitors or direct renin inhibitors. Again, you have to be uh, considerate about the risk of hyperkalemia. Um, and in the setting of severe bilateral renal artery stenosis, you may also encounter acute renal failure. Um, An uncommon but uh, a rare and rare finding is angioedema with ARBs, and certainly you want to avoid it in patients who have angioedema. Uh, however, patients who've had angioedema on ACE inhibitors can receive ARBs after six weeks. And again, because of the teratogenic effects, you want to avoid it in pregnancy. Um, we're all familiar with calcium channel blockers. Uh, they are the non-dihydropyridine and the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Um, amlodipine and philodipine are some of the commonly used ones, including nifedipine. And amlodipine and philodipine may be used in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Uh, additionally, you have to be uh, considerate of the uh, chronotropic effects of the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, which include diltiazem and verapamil. You want to avoid the use of those in uh, agents such as beta blocker because of the concomitant AV nodal blocking effects. And also you want to be aware of the drug interactions uh, of non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. So some of the secondary agents that we use are really driven by other comorbid medical conditions that, uh, that patients face. Uh, we may want to consider adding loop diuretics in patients with symptomatic heart failure and those with chronic kidney disease. Um, potassium-sparing diuretics, such as triamterene and amelioride, are not as efficacious when used as solitary agents and are usually used in combination therapy And you want to avoid them with chronic kidney disease. Uh, Spironolactone and eplerinone are aldosterone antagonists, and they're preferred when uh, you are treating primary aldosteronism. Uh, However, with spironolactone, you have to be aware of the risk for impotence and gynecomastia. And it's a common add-on therapy for resistant hypertension. You want to avoid potassium and potassium-sparing medicines. Uh, in the setting of aldosterone antagonists. And the important thing to remember if you're, you're planning to use a plerinone, it's a BID drug to get the most efficacy out of it. Um, and, of course, we can't have any talk about hypertension without talking about the cardiologist's favorite drug, beta blockers. So beta blockers come in various uh, types. Uh, there are cardioselective beta blockers. Uh, and uh, those include the agents listed here. They're usually not first-line uh, therapy unless you have ischemic heart disease, heart failure, or aortic disease. And bisoprolol, as well as metoprolol succinate, have some data available for the use of it in heart failure. Uh, Nebivolol is a unique beta blocker because it uh, induces nitric oxide-induced vasodilatation and is a very potent antihypertensive uh, period. Um, and so when we talk about other alpha and beta blockers, there's carvedilol and labetalol. And in the setting of heart failure, we really want to focus on the use of carvetilol. Um, as with most beta blockers, you want to avoid abrupt cessation. Um, another class of medications is the direct renin inhibitors which have fallen primarily out of favor just because we prefer ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and the risk of hyperkalemia uh, that can be associated with the use of direct renin inhibitors. But however, if you do choose to use them, uh, you have to be aware of some some of the same renal precautions and you want to avoid them in pregnancy. Um, Other secondary agents include the alpha blockers Uh, which are second line and can be used in patients with uh, uh, prosthetic diseases. And uh, we usually reserve Centra Alpha-1 agonists as usually last line because of their CNS effects as medications such as clonidine and uh, methyl dopa. And realistically, when you use clonidine, you have to be really cautious about the risk for rebound hypertension with abrupt cessation. Uh, Vasodilators, such as hydralazine and minoxidil, uh, are associated with some sodium and fluid retention and cause reflex tachycardia. So oftentimes you may use it in combination with diuretics. Uh, And things to be uh, aware of is in hydralazine, uh, you can get a drug-induced lupus-like syndrome. And minoxidil, which we tend to use a little less often, is associated with pericardial effusion and hirsutism. So realistically, when we treat hypertension, we should really use a multifaceted, stepwise approach. All patients should really get diet and lifestyle counseling. As you've already seen, the impact of this can be significant. Uh, the usual step is to start with combination therapy, where because the data suggests that small doses of combination therapy are far more efficacious than using higher doses of monotherapy. So usually we tend to start with either an ACE inhibitor or ARB in combination with a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. And in some patients, you may want to opt for initiating a diuretic in addition to a calcium channel blocker because in certain populations that may be more efficacious. Um, and by the time you've come to the step of adding one of the uh, either spironolactone or eplerenone. You're already on three agents, and you're dealing with a case of resistant hypertension. You really should be thinking about what other potential explanations there are, pursuing an appropriate workup for it as well. Um, And as we talked about, beta blockers are not first-line agents. Um, You can add clonidine and direct vasodilators, such as hydralazine, minoxidil, and doxazosin. So this really brings us to, what are we doing here at Georgia Heart Institute? We have formed and developed a Hypertension Center of Excellence. And our focus is really on resistant hypertension, uh, where we want to take folks that are difficult to treat and offer them sort of a multifaceted approach, where we collaborate with exercise physiologists, dietitians to provide them counseling. We make sure they're on the right medicines, We try to avoid medicines that can be contributing to it or lifestyle things that can be contributing to hypertension. And we use the combination of both non-pharmacological and pharmacological intervention to hopefully improve patients' blood pressures. Um, Our goal is not to take over your patient or take over anybody's patient, but it's to co-manage the patient with you. So we want to be serving as a resource in the ambulatory setting for management of hypertension, and there are some newer and more novel therapies that Dr. Henry is going to touch on that can be uh, that will pro- we are able to provide through the George Hart Institute Center of Excellence, and hopefully by doing this combination team-based approach, we can improve outcomes, decrease the burden of cardiovascular and, and organ disease. And as you saw, even a small impact on blood pressure can have a huge outcome on, a huge impact on outcomes. And look out for an epic epic referral uh, for resistant hypertension clinic. It should be coming shortly, um, should be available, I'm told, by December 1st. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Henry to talk about some of the newer concepts in treatment and management of hypertension. Thank you for your attention. Good morning, I see you've
3: all survived the first real fall day here, but being from Connecticut, we got lots more to come. Um, Let me see if this works to get my slide deck up. There we go. So as Sanjay said, we're gonna talk a little bit about some newer treatments for hypertension. And I I think, you know, to, to think about the daunting amount of hypertension that's out there, You know, the old adage when you look to your left and you look to your right. Well, you just only need to look to one side to figure out who's hypertensive. You don't even need to look to both sides because about 50% of all Americans are hypertensive in their adult years. So it's a very, very prevalent disease. It's the number one risk factor for premature morbidity or mortality in the US and worldwide. So I have no disclosures. Uh, Some learning objectives. There's some questions for CME. So where are we now? We talked a little bit about the numbers. You know about 54 million people, that's million, are treated for hypertension. Um, And a small portion of those are actually controlled, but only about half of all people have blood pressure control. Now you remember that the guidelines have changed. It used to be 140 over 90 was the goal. It's now 130 over 80. And with that, we've taken another 20 or 25% out of the control range. So if you really want to get 130 over 80, we're doing less than 50% of our job. There are significant risks from hypertension. And we've talked about these before, heart failure, stroke, coronary disease, kidney disease, blindness, and the list goes on. We can make significant reductions with that 20 over 10 drop, but even 10 points or five points, every little bit makes a difference because this is such a prevalent disease state that small changes, when you multiply that by millions of people, have huge impacts. So I'm going to talk a little bit today about the newer treatments for hypertension and things that are going to be coming to the bedside over the next decade. And I'm going to group those into pharmacologic, which are drugs, uh, implantable or surgical procedures. So pharmacologic, there's some new exciting aldosterone synthesis inhibitors coming out, lorundostat and baxterostat. And these actually block the synthesis of aldosterone rather than a receptor blocker. Um, Probably one of the most interesting ones is uh, zilabeserin, which is like in glycerin. It's a twice yearly injectable small interfering RNA, uh, which blocks the synthesis of angiotensinogen, which all you know is in that RAAS cascade. Uh, So that's extremely promising. And then there's also poly pills and triple pills, and we'll see about triple pills in some of the upcoming studies. But the most combination, uh, most common combination is one of amlodipine, clorthalidone, and telmosartin, which is an ARB. So talking a little bit about implantable. So for any of you who have done carotid stenting, you know that the minute you dilate or implant a stent in the carotid, frequently there's a profound drop in blood pressure, and that's the baroreflex activation. And so there's some surgical implants uh, with pacemaker-like electrodes. Um, The first was the Rheus device, and then there was some complications with implant, but their Barostem Neo um, has some significant improvements. Henry, I don't know if you can put me on presenter view rather than this view. That would be great. Um, some significant improvements in drops blood pressure to over that 20 over 10 range. Way back before I was born, 20s, 30s, and 40s, they did sympathectomies, um, which were major operations, and the cure was often worse than the disease. But this was the era of hypertension treated with phenobarbital. Um, There's some fascinating historical accounts of FDR and other people in prominent positions being treated with sedatives for hypertension. Um, but what we've learned is that a lot of that sympathetic traffic comes from the renal artery nerves or the perirenal artery nerves. And there's many ways to get to these nerves. So they've used radio frequency energy uh, to ablate those, and that's uh, the spiral catheter right now by Medtronic. There's an ultrasound catheter by Recore, and those are the paradise trials. There's even people who have a small injection technique. Uh, called the Peregrine Syndrome System, where they inject denatured alcohol outside the renal artery to injure the nerves. Um, they've tried brachytherapy with beta radiation, and there's even MRI, um, magnetic resonance uh, heating and injury. So this was the, the first uh, real long paper, because every talk needs a New England Journal paper to show. Um, but I want to point out that On this paragraph right over here, they're talking about bilateral serial transdiaphragmatic surgeries. I think I would rather take a medication. Um, So that's some pretty serious stuff. So we've come a long way now being more specific and targeted uh, to renal denervation. So the nerves around the renal arteries are afferent and efferent, uh, going away and towards, and they're largely all sympathetic. They go to the periaortic uh, and celiac plexus, and they stimulate all of those things in the kidneys that raise blood pressure. They activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, they decrease sodium excretion, and they decrease renal blood flow, which then feeds back and does all of the above again. So this is just a little diaphragm, a diagram, not the diaphragm, of the nerves here. And these white are the nerves around the renal artery. So you can see if we put a catheter in the renal artery, we have got a lot of ablation to do to all of these. And you have some accessory arteries with some nerves and another accessory artery with some nerves. So there's a lot of work we need to do. Sometimes kidneys have two main arteries. um, And then this is what we're talking about. This is an angiogram through this section here. So simplified, you want to inhibit renal vasoconstriction, decrease renin, decrease sodium retention. And then on the feedback, you want to decrease your central sympathetic tone. So what are the goals of all this? Well, you wanna decrease systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure. But interestingly, systolic blood pressure has a little bit greater prognostic effect. And how do you measure the blood pressure? You can measure it at home, you can measure it in the office, you can measure it in CVS and Walgreens and Kmart and Walmart. But it turns out the best predictors are the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure measurements. And also nighttime blood pressure measurements. So typically when you sleep, your blood pressures dip or they drop. And those non-dippers, as they're referred to in the literature, are people who have the highest risk. And we also need to remember that as you age, um, there is a little bit of a J-curve. So if you are over 80 and you have cardiovascular disease, dropping blood pressures too low can actually... Be disadvantageous. Um, so we need to take that into account. But the goal is to feel better and live longer. So we have renal denervation. The question is: you know, we're not gonna go do this to every patient of the millions upon millions who have hypertension. So, how do we decide who might be a suitable candidate for this? So, as Sanjay mentioned, resistant hypertension is about 10% of all hypertension. It's by definition people on three medications or more. But there are several other groups that come to mind. What about patients who don't tolerate medications? What about patients who have very high cardiac risk, number of other risk factors outside of hypertension? And it's not just the number of risk factors. It's the severity of risk factors and also the duration of exposure. So if you have someone in their 30s with the same amount of risk factors as someone in their 80s, the 30-year-old is going to have a much likelier higher event rate over the ensuing years and lifetime. Noncompliance has always been an issue. So if patients don't want or forget or can't take their medications, is this a procedure that we should offer them uh, to encourage their noncompliance, as it were? or treat their non-compliance. Remember, once you have the procedure, you're automatically compliant so that there is some reinforcement in that. So the current modalities that we have now for renal denervation are radio frequency energy, ultrasound energy. And I'm not gonna to talk too much about alcohol injection because the initial trials were not that promising. So as you know, we started way back in the 20s and 30s with sympathectomy. And then we went to some unipolar catheter ablations of the renal arteries. And the initial reports for those, you know, over a decade ago, were almost too good to be true. So then we started to do more trials. And then we did some sham controlled trials. And now we've come back around to having some published trials, which show that there is some benefit for renal artery denervation. And we're gonna go through some of those trials. Uh, The point is to just point out some of the differences and the measurement subtleties in them. Um, And there are also some teaching points. But I think the bottom line is a renal artery denervation procedure gets you about the blood pressure lowering of one medication. It's about four to six millimeters of mercury. Not huge, but remember, the burden of this disease in the population is huge. And maybe that 5-millimeter lowering on average does make a significant difference in outcomes when you multiply that small risk by millions of patients. So what constitutes a high-quality trial? We already know this. Multi-center, randomized, double-blinded, sham-controlled if it's a procedure. And we've chosen the ambulatory blood pressure endpoint. So these are the pivotal, what I call, second-generation trials. And we're going to deal primarily with the radiofrequency energy and the ultrasound energy. Um, So there's three and two. um, But I want to point out that the age of these patients is relatively young. So we can see the age here, 50s. Not a lot of women. Not a lot of minorities, which we'll show in later slides and blood pressure was elevated, 150, 160, and the drops we got, 5, 7, 4, 6, 5, 6, 4, 1. Not huge, real numbers, statistically significant, taken out over millions of patients. There is gonna be a drop in the vent rate, which is gonna be significant, but about the same as in medicine. So this is the uh, Medtronic Spiral device. It's got four radio frequency generators. It's put up through a catheter into the renal artery. And this heats the peri-arterial tissue and destroys those nerves. So the first trial that was done was something called Simplicity Hypertension 3. This was actually a very good learning tool. Um, It was a negative trial, and as you know, negative trials tend to be kind of pushed aside as not helpful, but this actually turned out to be very helpful. Um, They did find that there were some significant blood pressure reductions, but it wasn't really superior to the sham procedure, and when we started looking into this, you can figure out why. So it included patients with secondary hypertension, so we weren't treating the real cause of the hypertension. Um, the drug treatment in the sham group, because they could increase and in uptitrate, was more than than the renal denervation group, which really didn't increase much at all. So the blood pressure goals converged because the renal denervation was basically used as an additional medicine. So there was only about a two point difference, not that much. The operators were not that experienced. Only a third of them had done more than one of these procedures. That's not someone you want operating on you or your loved ones. Um, They really didn't understand the anatomy very well. They just did a few focal sections of the renal artery. But as you saw in the anatomic dissections, there's nerves all over the place. So you have to do the entire artery. And then there were some changes. You saw the four poles on the catheter. There was only a monopolar catheter initially. So that led to these several studies. And the first thing they did was they took patients who were off medicines for a kind of proof of concept, and then they took med- patients who were on medications to show that it was an additional benefit. So the patients who were off meds were not on any meds, or they discontinued their medicines, And on medicines, they were taking one to three medicines at a specified rate. So let's look at the inclusion criteria because these are important. So we're talking about systolic pressures of 150 to 180. We're also talking about diastolic pressures over 90. And a large part of our patient population we see here uh, tends to be the older folks, not the 53 and 54-year-olds. So this is not a treatment for isolated systolic hypertension, or maybe I should rephrase that. It wasn't studied in isolated systolic hypertension. So these patients all had systolic and diastolic hypertension. Um, They didn't have bad renal function. Uh, It was 3A and above, so GFR 45 or higher. Uh, They couldn't have type 1 diabetes or have an A1C Greater than 8%, which unfortunately is also a large part of our population here. But you can see here that on the off medication, this was compared to baseline, not compared to sham. Compared to baseline, blood pressures dropped about nine points. But remember, there's regression to the mean. So when you have sham or placebo treated patients, they also drop three to four points. So what we can see here is on the 24-hour, there was only a 1.9-millimeter difference on the 24-ambulatory blood pressure monitor. The office was a little bit different. It was 4.9. And what is that again? Five millimeters per medicine, roughly. So it's about one medication. And you can see here that the medication burden for the renal denervation patients was about 29 and stayed about the same, and the sham went up about a half a tablet. This is a very interesting graph. So what this is is the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure graph, and the dark line above is where patients started, and the light blue line below is where they were in three years. And the interesting thing is you can see the sham also had kind of regression to the knee or more normal, but there was a significant drop 24 hours of the day with renal denervation. So it affected everything. It was a permanent, it was a treatment, and if you compare it to the sham, there was a difference. Not huge, but a difference. And if we translate that into treatment time, and then we look at what's called time in therapeutic range. So over the 24 hours, how often was your blood pressure at goal? You have to be careful when you read goals of these studies. Some is 130 over 80, some is 135 over 85, some are 140 over 90. So when you're reading the literature, look at what actually the goals were for the blood pressure. But clearly, the more time you spend in a safe range of blood pressure, the less your risks are. And I just really want to point out this green bar, 50%. So if we can get 50% of the time at less than 130 over 80, we can dramatically reduce risk. It was safe. There were not a lot of problems. The things that you worry about, Procedural complications, most likely, related to access issues. Other things didn't seem to matter. People worry about renal artery stenosis. It was about the same as the background rate of renal artery stenosis in similar patient groups. So it did not seem to be an issue. It seemed to be durable. Blood pressures from six months to one year to two year to three year stayed low. Now, some of this is medication titration, but we're doing better. It was part of a system of care that improved blood pressure control. And then this is basically the take-home. So renal denervation decreased the blood pressure without increasing the medication burden. It functions as an additional medication. So the question is, you know, If you're taking 4.55 medications and now you're going down to 4.33 medications, is that helpful or not? Now, remember, we're looking at blood pressure differences multiplied by millions, right? So a penny's not very thick. You take a million pennies, you can do the math and figure out how tall it is. It's way taller than you think. All right, so you can have a significant impact with small changes in blood pressure. The second device is an ultrasound device. So this is a catheter, very similar, goes into the renal artery, and instead of using radio frequency energy to heat the periarterial tissue, it uses ultrasound energy. Um, and this is kind of this little ring of energy that's delivered by an ultrasound. So the spiral studies, or for radio frequency, the radiance studies, or for ultrasound, and they follow the same pattern. We looked at it off medications, then on medications, and then durability and safety. So we'll go through some of those things here. So radiance solo was only with ultrasound denervation, and they got Lo and behold, pretty similar. Six points of blood pressure difference. In these patients who were not taking any medications, 18 of 74, 24 patients, or 24% of patients, met their goals for blood pressure control. Not as good as a medical regimen, which in the U.S. averages only 53% control rate, but certainly better than not taking any medications. And you saw these curves before. Um, The sham procedure here didn't have that much difference. And the renal denervation procedure actually had this little dip. These kind of overlapped a little bit in the dipping phase, which, who knows, may suggest that renal artery sympathetic traffic is not important in your nocturnal dipping. but this is the durability. So we see baseline, and then we see six months and 12 months. So it's a durable result. So they remember to take their medicines every day for 12 months for their five to six millimeter drop. Um, this was a medication arm, similar, replicating similar to prior studies, and it was compared to. That triple pill we t- talked about earlier, amlodipine, chlorthaladone, telmisartan And what they found is again, difference, four and a half. So maybe it doesn't really matter how we denervate the renal arteries, but as long as we can do it effectively and efficiently, we can get about one medication drop. And again, Similar curves. We got a little bit better control. Remember, this is on a background of triple therapy, so now we're up to 38% control. Still not as good as the average U.S. population, but remember, this is a unique patient set. So then we did a washout of antihypertensives for radians Two. And again, I want you to note 135 over 85 to 170 over 105. So a little bit different numbers, but larger spread. And again, this time we got an average drop of 7.9, which is a little bit more than we've been seeing. Uh, But again, the sham... Remember, we've had drops between one and five. So uh, there's a question of, you know, if your sham control is different in all these groups, you would expect a similar drop many times. So again, you have to just read these studies carefully. Again, 24-hour doesn't seem to matter. All phases of the day and night, there's a drop. And then this is the summary of the three... Radiance trials, and again, six, six, five. So, again, same kinds of numbers. Very low adverse events and durable. Now, I should point out these numbers look big, but this is with the addition and up titration of medications in addition. Okay, so it is additive to medications. So the question is, where are we now? So we have a new tool. The new tool seems to work. It seems to be effective, but then what do we do with it? The question is, remember, we're looking at an average of patients. So we need to figure out who responds and who doesn't respond. So is that patients with higher blood pressure, Is it patients with higher heart rate as an indicator of sympathetic tone. How about patients that don't dip nocturnally? We already mentioned earlier that's a very high-risk group. Maybe those patients respond the best. And how do we know when we've denervated the renal arteries? Um, There's been some studies looking at pacing of those nerve ganglions to see if we can measure output of sympathetic traffic. It seems permanent. We've seen studies to three years. There's no re yet, but we do know with transplanted kidneys, sometimes there's some re So maybe we still need to keep following these folks, and they are. And the important thing about this is the most common reason for failure in blood pressure is really non-compliance. So this has guaranteed compliance. So there's some downsides. There's the procedural risks, which are small, but they are not zero. We talked about renal artery stenosis, not an issue. There doesn't seem to be any change in kidney function, which is important. But this is also irreversible. If we find out 10 years from now that there's something horrible happening, we can't go and undo all that we've done. Some of you may remember the big crisis about the initial drug-coded stents that we were killing everybody. There's some very interesting lead stories in Time Magazine and New York Times about that, but it has become the standard of care. And then there's cost. So I did some simple math because that's the only math I know. So if we have someone who's 50 years old, they take three generic medications, that's $5 each for a month, $15 a month, $180 a year, for 30 years, not counting for inflation and other issues. This procedure is going to be more than $5,400. But there's compliance issues, but there's also cost issues. So the question is, that's just the medication cost. When we talked about the added burden of events, and we're talking about heart attacks and heart failure and strokes and kidney failure and retinal issues, So there's a lot of other added costs in here that don't go into this simplified calculations. But if we're saying it's an additional medication, there's a baseline cost side for you. So in summary, nothing takes the place of lifestyle interventions. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the rest of the world is becoming westernized. And about 75% uh, of the Uh, lower and middle income countries um, have the same burden of hypertension that we do. Um, So there's some growing issues with that. It seems safe, but time will tell. It seems to be about the same as an additional medication, six millimeters or less on average. Compliance tends to go up. With less medications or taking the converse, compliance goes down the more medications you have. So maybe this does help with that. For those patients who are at higher adverse event rates, this may be helpful. Because if you have a high burden of other risk factors, this could be additive. Um, Remember, we don't have any long-term hard endpoint studies. So there's no studies that show decreased risk of stroke or heart attack at this point. Um, But they've only been three years, and you look at the end of a lot of these studies, and they're between 100 and 500. And then the other question is, are there a group of responders in the midst of all those patients that we've averaged out who are super responders? Maybe those are the patients we should be uh, focusing on. Um, And then we also need to think about patient-centered decision-making, you know, Is this something that you want to do to take one less medicine if you still have to take three other ones? Some patients will say yes to that, very much so. Um, So I think at this point, maybe we should open it up to some questions. Uh, We're about at our time.
0: Do we have any questions from the audience? We have a question back there. Dr. Burkle?
3: Yes, thank you. Thank you, Glenn and Sanjay, for an excellent presentation. A couple of questions for you, Glenn. Uh, Simplicity 3 was criticized predominantly because of the lack of experience from the operators. And uh, in your view, about how many of these procedures should an operator do to be considered experienced? That would be number one. And number two, is there any data on actually withdrawing medications once you accomplish a successful denervation? Yeah, so I don't think any of the trials looked or or it wasn't reported that I saw about how many medications were withdrawn. Uh, They seem to stay about the same in the shan group added. So you could say that it, it was addition by subtraction, but they tend to stay on the same amount of medications. And as you know, our blood pressure goals are getting stricter and stricter because we know that the risk profile doesn't get relatively flat until you're almost what's considered optimal at 120 over 80 um, so I'm unaware of a withdrawal of medications, but it prevents the addition of medications. And then in terms of the procedure, you know, if a third of all operators had only done one procedure, that's, that's a problem. So there is going to be a learning curve to that. Um, it's not a complex uh, procedure. Uh, it may be five procedures. It certainly is not going to be a tonne. There is some variability in renal anatomy and accessory arteries, and some tricks to getting catheters in and out. Um, but it's more than one.
2: Oh, excellent, uh, Sanjay. I was gonna—I may have missed this—but um, I was gonna have you comment on uh, sacubitril valsartan, i.e., Entresto, for blood pressure control, because I think it's probably one of the more potent antihypertensives we have out there. In, You know, pretty soon, maybe uh, generic, so if you could make a few comments on that.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, Entresto is a very potent antihypertensive. I think, you know, mainly right now we've been focusing on folks with heart failure and using it in folks (laughs) with heart failure. I think the other challenge that has been caused has been one of the other things that uh, patients have to struggle with. Uh, and I think that cost burden is certainly coming down, and I anticipate that might be more widely used.
0: Thank you for that. do Do we have any other questions? Anything online? No online questions.
3: Yeah, I just uh, one one comment back to Ugo though with the barrow stem procedure that they're looking at reducing blood pressure, actually because it does modulate sympathetic tone. As you know, we're involved in some trials here looking at that device for heart failure patients who don't respond to the usual cadre of medications.
2: Yeah, No, I agree. I think that a whole neuromodulation, particularly with a hypertension or heart failure, that's a whole new space that there's a lot of work being done. And, and certainly with the patients we've seen who've undergone the barostem uh, procedure for heart failure, Uh, If there are it's interesting, if they were hypertensive, their blood pressure tends to gradually come down. Um, But for some of them, if they're actually hypotensive, their blood pressure comes up, but we can actually add on more GDMT. So it's interesting how you can modulate on either side of that uh, continuum.
0: Dr. Samadhi has a question. Um, First of all, he says, great talk. When will the resistant, resistant hypertension center get up and running?
1: Um, So we anticipate that the referral will be in place in EPIC uh, around December 1st is what I'm promised. So we should be up and running. And uh, in fact, if you want to send patients today, you're more than welcome to put in a referral. You can put it under my name um, and I'd be happy to help out. On
2: that same line, quick question. Um, Do we currently offer the denervation therapy here? And if yes, is it going to be a referral through the resistant hypertension clinic?
3: Yeah, so uh, we currently do not offer it here. Uh, None of these uh, procedures are FDA approved. Um, There will be a vote coming up sometime around Thanksgiving. Uh, By the end of this month, we'll have some information on both the Medtronic and Record device, whether they get approved or not. Uh, Once those are approved, then yes, we should get access to one of them, um, and the referral would come through the Hypertension Center.
0: Well, thank you all very much for coming this morning. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.